Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father Adam covers paragraphs 988 to 1065, What Happens When I Die. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy. and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our um, last session on this part of the Catechism. We've been going through the Creed, um, and tonight we are going to go over our profession of, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. so we're going to cover that today. begins on paragraph 988. Um, by way of advertisement, um, in January, starting January the 12th, we'll be starting um, the next part of the catechism, which is entitled, so if this one is the profession of faith, the next one is the celebration of the Christian mystery. So part two. We're going to start that January the 12th, again, 645 at the cathedral. And in that, uh, it'll be 10 weeks, we'll go through the the part on the sacraments. Um, And then, probably a little bit after Easter, my goal is to then go into the next part, which is the morality section. So. So let's begin. So the catechism, again... It starts off, if last um, we ended with, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, which is really nestled um, as part of the church's profession in um, the belief in the church, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The forgiveness of sins comes from Christ and is continued through the life of the church. Today... um, as we go into I believe in the resurrection of the body and I believe in life everlasting, we really consider what we traditionally call the last things, the last things, the five last things. So the catechism first deals with the concept of the resurrection of the body, this profession of the resurrection of the body which flows from our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has risen from the dead, there is now this possibility that all will rise from the dead. In paragraph 990, the Catechism defines a term for us Namely, this word flesh, the word flesh. 
The term flesh refers to man in his state of weakness and mortality. So you know Paul uses this throughout his letters in the New Testament. The resurrection of the flesh, flesh, which is the literal formulation of what the Apostles' Creed says, means not only that the immortal soul will live on after death, but that even our mortal bodies will come to life again. Now, you, we've seen in the last month or so, because a couple people have asked me about it, uh, the Catholic Times asked me to comment on it, you know, there are all these, um, Pew, the Pew Research has put out the, this, that um, even um, a plurality, 40% say, of weekly church-going Catholics say they don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, that it really is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But you know, an interesting survey that, that they might want to do, or someone might want, might want to do if they're looking for a thesis for a sociology pro- project or something like that, is to survey what we actually believe when people say, I believe in the resurrection. Because I think most of us, most people, most Christians, most professing Catholics, probably think that when we profess, I believe in the resurrection, it is that, well, my soul will live on, that my soul lives on. But the radical, and I, I mean, I think it's probably even more radical than our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, is, and, and in fact, our ability to profess this truth, the resurrection of the body, flows from our belief in the Eucharist. Um, one of the apostolic fathers, actually it was St. Irenaeus, says that um, our belief that we receive the very body and blood, soul, and divinity in, of Jesus in the Eucharist is a proof for the resurrection. It, it would only be possible for us to receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ because he has risen from the dead. And so Irenaeus uses the flip. Because we believe in the resurrection, or because we believe in the Eucharist, we should also believe in the resurrection of the body. But I think most people, when they hear resurrection, they just think our soul lives on. But the powerful truth um, is that our soul and our body will both rise. That's the promise of this resurrection. So it's not just the living on of our soul, but that our body will also rise and be reunited with that soul. Of course, this, as I mentioned earlier, this profession of the resurrection um, from the dead flows from what Jesus did. Because of his resurrection, we have hope in this. God revealed the resurrection of the dead to his people progressively over time. In the Old Testament, there seems to be references to the possibility of the resurrection. Job says, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives on the last day, you know. Um, We know that the Lord, when he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, says that I am who am. 
But the Lord also reveals himself as, as the, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But they can't be dead. They have to have this new life, this possibility of resurrection, because God is not the God of the dead. The greatest example is in Maccabees, where they pray for those um, people who have died, and most importantly, really the testimony of what are called the Maccabean martyrs. So those sons of the woman who each, as they're getting ready to be executed, give sort of a testimony of their hope in the resurrection. And then we see, at the time of Christ, this group called the Pharisees profess their belief in the resurrection as well. So this isn't some sort of Greek invention that was inserted into Christianity later, which is sort of the implicit claim. But there is more. Um, Jesus links faith in the resurrection to his own person. So the resurrection isn't just about this new life, but it's also a new life in Christ. Christ isn't just the model of resurrection, but he's really the one that we share life with and in and through in the resurrection. From the beginning, Christian faith in the resurrection has met with incomprehensible and opposition. It seems in some sense to be the most far-fetched of the things that we believe. It is very commonly accepted that the life of the human person continues in a spiritual fashion after death. You know, everyone seems to perhaps acknowledge or accept this unless there's some sort of nihilist or something like that. But how can we believe that the body, so clearly mortal, could rise to everlasting life? The Catechism asks us in paragraph 996. So then, in the next couple paragraphs, the Catechism does a really beautiful job, I think, of breaking down the mystery of the resurrection of the dead. First of all, in 997, it asks... What is rising? What is rising? What do we mean by this? In death, the separation of the soul and the body, which if you recall when we talked about original sin, we talked about what the definition of death is, which is the separation of the body from the soul. We profess that, um, yes, the body decays and the soul goes to meet God, but eventually, there will be this reunion of the two by God's almighty power. Then the second question is, who will rise? Now, sometimes we miss this. The Catechism tells us clearly, all the dead will rise, both those who have done good and those who have done evil. But there's two forms of sharing in the resurrection. So every, every human being that has ever lived will rise from the dead. His body or her body and 
soul will be reunited. Resurrection could be a resurrection of life for the good or a resurrection of judgment for the evil. But everyone will rise. How do they rise? Well, ultimately in and through Christ. Christ will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And that, I think, is part of this resurrection to life. It's about sharing this new life with Christ for all eternity, as opposed to the resurrection of judgment, of separation. This how exceeds our imagination and our understanding. So the next question, of, or the next kind of continuation on how is that really, even though we can kind of say this, that it's through Christ, there is a great mystery. But, but we can kind of get a foretaste of it, see how it might work mysteriously through the Eucharist. Because our participation in the Eucharist already gives us this foretaste of what Christ is doing. And then finally, the when. When will this happen? At the end of the world, at Christ's parousia. Parousia, well, what the heck is a parousia? Um, It's the fancy word for Christ's second coming. Parousia. That's when this will happen, at Christ's second coming. In some ways, we already share in the resurrection of Christ. We, already, we are already risen with him, most especially in our baptism where we died with Christ, in our reception of him in the Eucharist and his risen body in the Eucharist our mysterious participation with him in the life of the church, and even in our sufferings, our mysterious union and participation with him. But in order, of course, for us to experience this rising in Christ, we also have to realize that there is a dying in Christ. There is a certain departure um, which is necessary. The Catechism tells us that death really has a new meaning now. And so we went from this idea of resurrection of the body, and the Catechism in 1005, 1005, now moves to kind of um, the, the premise behind the resurrection, namely death this idea of death. Again, the Catechism tells us that death is a departure from this world in which the soul is separated from the body. That's our definition of death. And here is a great mystery. On the one hand, death is very natural. It seems very natural. But as if, we, if you recall from our uh, treatment of, the ori- of original sin, 
death is also a result of sin, of original sin. This is a great mystery um, that I think is worth reflecting on a little bit. Um, So, what would have happened to Adam and Eve if they didn't have, if they did not fall into original sin? Would they have died? Well, it seems that the human being is created with mortality. That there would be some sort of, we wouldn't say death, but transition. We experience this transition as death because of original sin. So that way we can say that death is both, in some sense, natural, but then on the other sense, a product of original sin. Now precisely how Adam and Eve would have experienced death without the fall, we really, we really don't know. But as it is, death is the end of earthly life. This is how we can see this as Christians, as people with faith and with hope. Death is the end of an earthly life. Our lives are measured by time, the catechism tells us. And we are mindful that we are limited, both in our strengths, but also in our mortality. So, really, our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you might ask, well, why is it that the catechism dealt with resurrection before it went to death? Well, because we believe in the resurrection, both of Jesus Christ and of all the dead, we can look at death in a new way. Part of that new way is understanding it as both natural but also the product of sin. The second is that it is a wake-up call for us to remember that our journey here on earth, our time here on earth, is limited. We also are mindful that death is now transformed by Christ. That Jesus Christ, our Savior, in taking on our human condition, has also experienced death, the separation of body and soul. But despite the the difficulties, the sufferings, the anguish surrounding death, Christ endures it out of obedience to the Father's will. And so our embracing of death, facing it, um, is a submission to the Father's will an acceptance of the will, the Father's will. So if we see now um, death as just a, a reminder that things are come to an end here, a reminder that it flows from sin, and then third, a reminder that our facing death puts us really in the same company of Christ including accepting it as the will of the Father for us. That approach, which our Christian faith gives us, gives us a deeper meaning of Christian death. 
there's a couple beautiful paragraphs here. I know maybe you don't always want to reflect on death, but um, they're definitely good paragraphs worth reading. Um, paragraph 1010 um, gives us sort of a helpful understanding of the positive meaning of, of Christian death. That by dying, Paul tells us, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That death offers us something more. Namely, to be with Christ. Even more, the Catechism tells us um, that we can now experience a certain desire for death. Finally, the, the Catechism and its treatment of death reminds us, encourages us, that part of this new Christian attitude to death is that we prepare ourselves. For that hour through prayer and through the sacraments. So the catechism has dealt with the resurrection and now with death, then it switches into life everlasting. So the catechism explains that when death happens, when our body and our soul are separated, the time, the opportunity, we might say, to either accept or reject divine grace, Jesus Christ, it comes to an end. After we're dead, there's no more choices. Now we should know that based on how we studied the human person earlier in the Catechism that we know what's distinctive about a human person is their reason and their freedom, but that both of those require both the body and the soul. And so if one of those is missing, we can't really make a choice anymore. It's impossible for us to make a choice. There is an error that's um, somewhat common. I think it's dying out, but you never know. That um, somehow, after we die, there's a, an opportunity to kind of fundamentally opt one way or the other. But this is contrary to the tradition and, and certainly contrary to what the catechism is teaching. We call this, at the moment of death, the particular judgment. So each of us, every human being, receives two judgments. The first is the particular judgment. The last one is the final judgment. Particular judgment, final judgment. The particular judgment we receive at the moment of our death. Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ. Either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through a purification or immediately or 
immediate and everlasting damnation. So when we die, based on the, the state of grace that we are in, or the absence of the state of grace, or the, per, the perfection or imperfection of our soul, we receive one of three, we might call them verdicts, judgments. Maybe verdict is a little gentler for you to hear than judgment. But one of three. The first is an entrance into the blessedness of heaven, but first through purification. We, of course, call that purgatory. Now, the catechism is going to go through heaven, hell, and purgatory. So we'll we'll, um, go over each of those um, verdicts in a moment here. The second, of course, is immediate entrance into the blessedness of heaven. And then the third is immediate and everlasting damnation. Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death. So then the catechism goes into heaven, which is the second of those three verdicts. In 1023, we hear the two factors necessary to receive the verdict of immediately going to heaven at our particular judgment. Those who die in God's grace and friendship, that's the first one, that we die in God's grace and friendship. And two, second, are perfectly purified. Then we live forever with So, of course, Jesus says that unless you are perfect, you cannot enter into heaven. Um, The idea is we need this to be perfect, purified of any imperfections, even the smallest sins or the smallest effects of sin, damage from sin. So those are the first two. The first condition, again, is grace and friendship with God. And then the second is this perfectly purified state. The catechism then goes on to explain what this heaven is like. Heaven is, first of all, the the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings. The state of supreme definitive happiness. So, the fulfillment of our deepest human longings. The state of supreme definitive happiness. So, when we think of heaven, I know people, you know, want to think about it in different ways. But I think, let us um, try to uh, meditate more on what are the deepest human longings. Because that's what is going to be fulfilled in heaven. What, are the, what is a, a supreme kind of happiness? Maybe we think about it in slight little terms, you know, like, oh, well, I will have strawberry ice cream all the time. Well, that doesn't really, strawberry ice cream is not the answer to, um, to these deepest human longings. 
you know, I think I could be a little more creative in imagining what heaven will be like. Number two, heaven is the blessed community of all who are perfectly incorporated into Christ. So heaven includes this communal aspect um, that we are um, drawn together in Christ, that we've heard about that in the church. That was Christ's mission to restore the human race and its unity, to reconcile the human race, to gather them together. Heaven is this um, an incorporation into a blessed community. Number three, it entails the mis- this, a mystery of a blessed communion with God and all who are in Christ. We're not just living community, but we're in a real and genuine communion with each other. Next, maybe we could say this is number three, um, is heaven entails what's called the beatific vision, the beatific vision. The catechism defines this for us in in paragraph 1028. Um, Because of his transcendence, God cannot be seen as he is unless he himself opens up his mystery to man's immediate contemplation and gives him the capacity for it. The church calls this contemplation of God in his heavenly glory the beatific vision. And then the fourth aspect of heaven is that it does not entail a separation in the sense of um, charitable concern in the world. In the glory of heaven, the blessed continue joyfully to fulfill God's will in relation to other men and to all creation. We call this the intercession of the saints. The Catechism then, in 1030, switches to the next particular verdict, particular judgment, namely purgatory, or final purgation. Again, um, two things to remember, two conditions necessary for purgatory, for this final purgation. First, all who die in God's grace and friendship, so you die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly are purified. so that one might achieve the holiness necessary to enter into the full joy of heaven. So you're in, if you're in purgatory, it's because you're in grace and friendship, but you are not perfected yet. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. It's more of a purifying um, process as as opposed to a punishment. There's a difference, I guess, between taking a hot shower and being boiled in water, you know. 
perhaps this is the difference. The scripture um, in reference to this does use this um, language of fire, a purifying, a cleansing fire. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7. What it purifies are the temporal effects of sin. The damage that has been done to us because of our sins. Of course, the sins have been repented. That's why we uh, repented of. That's why we are in grace and friendship with the Lord. But the damage is now cleaned up. The Catechism in these sections also makes clear that purgatory is not so much a place as it is a process. Which is why, you know, when we use the word purgatory, it kind of gives this sort of spatial reality. Um, but when the, as the catechism does, uses the, the phrase final purification, it's a little bit better. It, it seems to um, kind of um, emphasize that it's a process. And then the catechism, of course, um, tells us... Um, Purgatory is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, which is already mentioned in sacred scripture. And we point it to 2 Maccabees 1246. Another reference also is Matthew 1231. Matthew 1231. Then the catechism talks about hell. So there are two points, just like the other ones with hell. We cannot be united, just like the other ones, the other verdicts from the particular judgment. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. But we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor or against ourselves. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. The state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. So it's, a, it's our own choice. Hell is of our own choice by choosing either... In, you know, through our, our intention, you know, like I just, I opt not for God, or by our acts, which is really how we make choices, is by our actions. And if those actions, of course, um, cut out a love for God, or a love for neighbor, or a love for ourself, if they're contrary to those then it is contrary um, to God himself. It is a no. Our actions are our yeses or our noes. So to die, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's mercy separates us from that friendship, from that grace. 
Last week we talked about this communion um, that we have in the church by baptism. Um, and that communion, that state of grace, we sometimes um, refer to it. Uh, if we die outside of that state of grace, outside of that communion with God, then it is a definitive self-exclusion. Scripture sometimes refers to hell as Gehenna. Gehenna, the unquenchable fire. The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. So when one go, once one goes to hell, they, they do not leave. Immediately after the death of the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin, they descend into hell where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. And the documents of the church are pretty clear that it is um, not just a spiritual fire, but it, that it's a real, you know, like not in the sense of, but one actually feels pain, you know. We are talking about spiritual states, but... You know, there's a real genuine pain of burning that's involved. That is the difficult thing um, for us to wrap our minds with. Of course, after the particular judgment, the body and the soul are separated at this point. Um, The soul is experiencing these things. But yet the soul, as, a, as something spiritual, is beyond space and time, um, which makes it hard for us to, you know, um, to really imagine some of these things or to understand these things because um, they, they now transcend space and time. But yet the scriptures and the tradition are very clear that um, those in hell do experience a genuine, you know, um, a genuine pain, an eternal fire. But you know, as bad as the fire might be, the worst, the chief punishment, the catechism tells us, is an eternal separation from God. And ultimately, um, probably a, a separation from other human beings. a a lack, not just of communion, but of any real association. The affirmations of sacred scripture and the teaching of the church on the subject of hell are a call to the responsibility incumbent upon man to make use of his freedom in view of his eternal destiny. So when we talk about about hell, the catechism mentions here, first, there's one point about talking about hell, and that is, is it really is an affirmation of our human freedom. You know, that we have um, a, a great power, that the choices we make have eternal significance. They're not just you know, um, some small little, you know, fleeting decision that the Lord is going to kind of undo at the end of the day. But that really all of our choices have um, 
a serious consequence, and, and in fact, an eternal consequence, um, which should, which really is an affirmation of our dignity as human beings. That freedom, our freedom and our reason is significant, not because um, they just affect here and now, but that they actually have an eternal consequence. You know, it, it, it makes you ask the question from the song, you know, what is man that God is mindful of him? You know, what is man that we are, who are so finite, are able to make decisions and choices that affect eternity? And that's really, I think, um, you know, when, when the church talks about hell, that's a real affirmation of what it means to be human. But then second, when the church talks about hell, it's also a call to conversion. That even though our choices have eternal significance, or we might say our bad choices have eternal significance, our good choices also have eternal significance. And we can turn from sin and turn back to God. Finally, on this point of hell, the catechism is clear. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this is a willful turning away from God. Mortal sin is necessary and persistence in it until the end. So the catechism affirms um, one's the freedom, one's freedom in making this choice. Not in some sort of um, you know fundamental option kind of way or some sort of um, existential option, I'm trying to remember what Rahner used to call it, but um, you know, this sort of like deep core. Um, you know, like, I just reject God, you know, kind of decision from one's gut versus committing grave sins that are contrary to God. Well, the catechism tells us it doesn't require some sort of deep fundamental choice to say no to God. We say no to God in very simple ways, in, in, in breaking the Ten Commandments with full intent and full knowledge. Which aren't small things, by the way. You know, like, it's pretty significant. Then the catechism hits the very last thing, which is called the, well, not the very last part yet, but the last judgment. So we dealt with the particular judgment, which happens at everyone's death, each person's death. And then there is a final judgment, a last judgment. So after Christ returns in glory, we talked about Christ's return in glory um, earlier, about the time when we talked about the Paschal Mysteries, if you recall. Um, When Christ comes in glory, the dead will all rise. The resurrection of all the dead will happen, of both the just and the just, unjust. 
This precedes the last judgment. So when everyone is brought back to life, when their souls and their bodies are reunited, both those who are in heaven and in purgatory and those who are in hell, their souls and their bodies will be reunited. And the Lord renders another judgment. One, unto the resurrection of life for those in heaven and in purgatory that they will not just share in that joy of heaven as a soul, but with, their glor- with a glorified body. And then he renders also a judgment, a resurrection of judgment on those in hell. They're reunited with their bodies, and then they actually you know, feel physically with their body, their risen body, the pains of hell, the eternal flame. As all of the people of history are gathered before Christ, who is truth, the truth of each man's relationship with God is laid bare. So this is public. You know, uh, maybe people don't get to sit in on your particular judgment, but they'll all be sitting in on your final judgment. The last judgment will reveal, even to its furthest consequences, the good each person has done or failed to do in living their life. It comes when Christ comes in glory. It is his final word on history. I think there's a couple points that the Catechism makes about the knowledge that's revealed in the final judgment. And maybe that helps us to distinguish it from the um, particular judgment. With the final judgment, one, we're going to see the meaning of all human history. How it all kind of unfolded and why it unfolded. And from that, all the great, the infinite good that Christ brought out of the infinite evil committed throughout human history. Now, maybe people aren't that interested in that, but I'm sure historians would be really interested to sit in on that. Um, But it is nonetheless part of this general judgment. The second is to see from our own perspective, but also I think the perspective of the whole human race, how every little good thing we did affected the rest of the human race and how every little evil thing we did negatively affected the human race. And then also, um, which I think is is almost just as exciting, is this idea of how providence has guided everything to see how even these most insignificant experiences of our life were part of the Lord's plan. And to see how that's all interconnected. But you know, and, and I have heard um, in confe- you know, with, with confessors, they've said it to me, I've not said it to others, but um, that the... Um, 
one of the things to consider when you um, are thinking about sin or, or you know, as, as sort of a way to kind of avoid sin or resist sin is what I want, do I want to, do I want the rest of the human race to know that I did this? Because someday they will. And that's, that's a question I think that um, is worth asking ourselves regularly. So, and it and it drives home the, the fact that there are no private sins, you know, no no sins that well that that's just me, just between me and God. Then the catechism ends um, this section with the hope of the new heaven and the new earth. So after the final judgment, those who have received this. Um, Judgment of resurrection, resurrection, not uh, resurrection of judgment, resurrection of, um, of, of beatitude, of, of, um, of life, the resurrection of life, will share in the new heaven and the new earth. So all of heaven and earth will, in a sense, pass away and rise, be glorified, just as the body and the soul rise and are glorified so all of creation will be. We're reminded that part of the, the um, fall, so if, if we kind of recap, um, original sin has messed up our relationship with God. It's messed up our relationship with, with ourselves, individually ourselves, and um, the way that we operate. Third, it has messed up our relationship with other human beings, and fourth, it has messed up our relationship with all of creation. And so creation will be glorified as well. God will have his dwelling among the human race. For man, this consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God has willed from the beginning. The beatific vision, which we heard about earlier, in which God opens himself in an inexhaustible way to the elect, will be an ever-flowing wellspring of happiness, peace, and mutual communion. With our bodies, then, we will contemplate God more fully. We will share in his happiness and in this union with him in the body. For the cosmos, Revelation um, affirms that a profound common destiny of the material world and man, that it's destined to be transformed. We know, the Catechism tells us, neither how nor when this will happen. Just like precisely we don't quite understand how the resurrection of the body will happen, we know that it is our body, but how much of that body, or whether it's all of that body, or, you know, there's a lot of questions. And the same thing with the transformation of the world. We use this image of heaven and earth being united. Finally, just to end, um, the Catechism ends as both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed do, 
It ends with amen. Amen. The Catechism tells us that in Hebrew, amen comes from the same root as the word believe. It's interesting because this whole section we've been looking at the content of the faith, what we believe in the creeds, what has been revealed to us. Amen comes from the same root word as believe. This root expresses solidity, trustworthiness, faithfulness. And so we can understand why amen may express both God's faithfulness towards us and our trust to him. To emphasize the trustworthiness of his teaching, his authority is founded on truth. The Lord has revealed himself as truth. To believe is to say amen to God's words, promises, and commandments. To entrust oneself completely to him, who is the amen, of infinite love and perfect faithfulness. So we find ourselves back where we began uh, many months ago, where we looked at the idea, this understanding that the human person is in search of God, that God reaches out to him, reveals himself, and that man responds, and that this response of faith is a giving of his entire self. When we say amen, it is an affirmation that what God has revealed, what he has said to us, is trustworthy. And simultaneously, it is a handing of ourselves over to him, an entrusting of ourselves over to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.